Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Fear Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, VJ. Good morning. Good morning. Happy August. So <laughs> today, Finally. Uh, yeah, uh, today we have our special guest, just Dr. Christine Gardner, who is the author of the blog Pet Murmur and the poetry collection My Sister's Father, as well as The Birdhouse, a novel in progress. Uh, process, um, also in progress. She uh, taught writing and literature at the undergraduate and graduate levels for over a decade, and now helps young writers for um, finding their voice, developing their craft, and imagining the possibilities of storytelling in the new age. Welcome, Christine. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. Why don't we kick off the conversation a little bit about your writing and how, uh, one of the questions would be, um, what are some methodologies you use to teach writing and uh, how is your process? Um, tell us a little bit about your creative process. How is it unique or how is it? How do you uh, develop it? How, how do you do How do you engage in your creative process, especially uh, given? Um, yeah, you, you, you have a blog pet murmur. So yeah. tell us a little bit, you can kind of leap off of that. Yeah. Okay, okay so my creative process is um, one of exploration. So I generally um, produce a great deal more uh, content than actually ever appears in, in the finished product. So there's a lot of um, sort of channeled writing um, where I, I, I'm not thinking, but I'm just sort of like, or automatic writing. So my writing process tends to be automatic, like where I'm just sort of allowing whatever is coming through to come through. And then I have this sort of great quantity of work, which I comb through and curate and sculpt and hone and bring different elements together. So, um, so I experience it more as a channeling than a conscious state. Uh, it's more revision that's a conscious state. And um, and I'm very I'm a very formal writer. So I produce this great quantity of words. And then I like to use um, traditional forms in order to give it shape. Mm. Um, so yeah, so for example, with this with my blog Pet Murmur, or with my first book, My Sister's Father, um, the poems are roughly organized into sonnets, sort of fractured 14 line poems. Um, and I think that there are like 50 of them in the book, um, but there were thousands of pages that I wrote. And then they were that was all sort of winnowed down into this um, very concise form. Um, and that's also how I teach. I teach uh, to, I teach students to sort of like let go of their inhibitions and to allow to allow what comes to come out. And then we go there and we, we look at what's there and we think about what form it wants to take. Yeah, it seems like it's a great process, especially when so many young writers think about writer's block and writers, you know, it's a great process, great methodology to allowing, to letting that flow to happen so that then you know, people can then uh, say, oh, I produced this amount and now look at it with the critical editor's eye, I guess. Yeah. yeah. 
You, you talk about writing as transformation, and one of the interesting aspects of uh, Pet Murmur in some ways is the interactive nature of it, that you are interacting with some of the subjects of the poems and things like that. Mm-hmm. How, wh- where does the transformation come? Is it in the process of that winnowing down and making choices about what you're going to go for? Or is it also, or can it also be about the interaction of the writer with an audience, with a reader, with an online public, with the people who actually interact with the work? Where, how does the transformation affect those different stages? So I think that the first stage of transformation occurs in the externalization of, of, of the internal. So simply through the writing process of externalizing and putting onto paper that which is subconscious or that which is hidden, that it's like a first sort of reckoning. It's a transformation where we see what is inside of us externalized on the page. And then from there, there's the shaping process, uh, the process of making something from that material that can be shared with an audience. And so as a writer, we are our own first readers, right? It's about figure, it's about listening to the text and what the text really wants to say. And then there is something really transformational about um, telling radical truths publicly and um, because it transforms who you are, it transforms who I am as a writer to speak the truth and to have the truth received by a reader. Uh, there's like, there's a communion that occurs. Um, that's fundamentally, that I think transforms our consciousness in a way that no other art form truly does. The way in reading we lay our consciousness over the eye in a text and sort of merge with the, with the speaker or the narrator in a text. Um, so that, I, yes. Yeah, so I, that, I want to get a little bit more into the truth telling and, um, and revision and such and how you're bringing out, I guess, uh, tell us a little bit more about the process of like, now when, you, when you're doing the channeling or when you're writing kind of a large amount of material, you want to kind of curate out the essential truths uh, and how do you, what is the process behind revision and truth telling, you know, and how you're able to capture, um, is anything lost in the translation or how, how do you navigate that? Well, I think that truth is like a vibrational state as opposed mm. to like, I, I'm not so much interested in fact yeah. as them in emotional truth mm. and sort of recreating um, emotional states through the writing. Mm. Um, so, so I, I do think that there's, that, you know, societally we're so sort of consumed by facts and data, but the, but truth is a different, has a different vibration. It's a, it's a frequency, the frequency of truth. Um, and that is, um, and that is what I'm always sort of looking for in my own work and in the work of my students. Like you feel it when you read something that, that someone has needed to say and has never said before, there's a resonance, there's a deep resonance. And, um, and that's what I read for in my own work. And that's, that's what I try 
to um, help my students unearth in their own process as well. Could you describe Pet Murmur a little more, particularly the ABC section, because I think hearing your general approach, it's interesting to see then how you applied this to a collection like the ABCs in Pet Murmur, um, which is both interactive and then also went through this whole process you just described. Yeah, so, um, so I, I had written it, so Pet Murmur is a, a blog that is, a book. Like I'm really interested in how the book can appear in the digital space. So Pet Murmur is a book in two sections. The first section is an ABC book called Boyfriends. And it is a compendium of <laughs> uh, boys, Adam through Zachary, and like an exploration of relationships. And so there's a poem about a boy or man for every letter of the alphabet. And um, so the, and they're true stories, right? And each poem contains like a confession, something that I had never said or shared. Um, and so I published those poems um, in weekly sort of posts and blasts from, from a secret admirer um, in 2016 and 2017. But the whole process, the whole project was built on the permissions process. So I like contacted the subjects of the poems. I said, this is what I'm going to write. These are the, pic the images I'm going to use. Um, may I use your name? May I use this image? Is there anything you'd like me to change? Is there anything you'd like me to add? Like, um, and so it was like a real exercise in embarrassment. <laughs> it was like a very bold project. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of took the revenge element out of that kind of yeah. <laughs> story, kind of collection. I love that, and the and that there are photos of the actual people involved and those kinds of things. Now, let's just also let everyone know how can they find Pet Murmur and and what's the best way to access that. Uh, it's at www.petpetmurmur.com. Okay, great. Um, so anyway, but that's, uh, that's such an unusual process for that. We're so used to this kind of polarized talking about, uh, lovers and people we've been engaged with in some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, dialectical way. And here you are going through this really must've been a, a very beautiful process at times to reconnect and to uh, yeah, go through something. I wouldn't say it was beautiful. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. But it was <laughs> mostly, it felt, there was, a, it felt like a necessity. It felt like something I needed to do. Um, it, it, like, it, or compult, or it, the work was demanding that I, that I do this work. I don't think it was, consciously, it, it wasn't something I really wanted to do, but it was something that was important to do for my own process and for, um, yeah. And so. also there was a number element. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that aspect and, and how they work, work together. Yeah. So the, so the second part of the project is called confession and it is a numbers book like, um, that's based on the Roman Catholic sacrament of penance where you sit in the box and tell your priest your sins. Mm. And so uh, there is a confession to correspond to each of the Ten Commandments. 
and their prose poems. Um, so, and those I put up more recently, like in December or January. Um, so, I mean, it's a, all told, it's a pretty intense project. <laughs> mm. And um, it has to do with, first of all, um, a lot of things. It has to do with the foundations of knowledge, how we learn to be ourselves. Um, it has to do with, uh, and it's about appropriating these forms that we think of as, as didactic and for children and sort of infusing them with very adult, not, not a, a, like adult, but mature themes, you know? Yeah. So um, also, you know, the alphanumeric system is uh, the way that we have organized all knowledge. All knowledge is organized either alphabetically or numerically also and encoded alphanumerically. And so uh, I, I do feel like there's something like pretty radical about um, appropriating that and also foundational in terms of like uh, creating text that's meant to be consumed in the digital space, it's meant to be engaged in the digital space. Like these are the, I feel that these are the fundamental these are fundamental web-based books. Like this is fundamental web poetics. Well, <laughs> I, that's also extremely fascinating. And, and one of my thoughts as I was reading through it and this idea of where we're going is how do you, or how do we work in media like an internet-based publishing environment uh, which can be so much more interactive as you have made it without breaking into the sort of toxicity that we seem to bring to this platform as well. Um, you know, writing the revenge poem or, you know, uh, people descending upon a writer and just eviscerating their work and, or, you know, in some ways, seeing you know, all those well-known negative things that can happen in, in the, uh, social media world, how do we use the best of this and, and not get sort of carried away with the worst of it, do you think? Well, I think that I, I don't have the answer to that question. I do, I do think that there, that what you're describing is like the viral mob mentality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, I don't have the, I don't have the answer. I do, but I. It is an essential question. Yeah, because it's. I I feel like I have a great social media community, and for me, by and large, it's always been very positive, and I've gotten in touch with people from throughout my life that I never would be in touch with anymore. Um, so it's had that kind of impact, and and not much on the negative side. But then I'm not necessarily putting a lot out there either you know it's sort of like just friendly chat stuff and not trying to really as you say tell essential truths in that environment i'm not sure i trust that that environment with those with uh, those parts of me yeah i'm not sure i do either and <laughs> you know it's all out there anyway i think that that's that's the other sort of element of pet murmur is that like um 
we're living in a time when there are no secrets and where everything that's been in the dark is coming to the light. And so like a little preemptive confession, never hurt anyone. Yeah, yeah. You've got nothing on me because it's all out there anyway. Why don't we hear a sample from Pet Burmer and then we can proceed from there, yeah. Yeah, what do you, um, let's see. Um, I don't know what to read. Yeah, just uh, yeah. you can read the first uh, first poem. Just let people get a grounding in kind of its uh, its aesthetic and all that kind of a thing. Well, the two books are very different, but um, I can read the the first poem from the confession. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so. It's called No Other Gods, One, No Other Gods. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Something happened the summer I was 11 years old. Something bad happened. I can't say it out loud, but when I close my eyes, I can still see the paint, chips like crushed robin's eggs framing the edges of nothing. I hear the key working the bolts into place in the door smell the dilapidation, stained plywood walls, pink yellow linens, his face. Look what you did, look what you made me do, the muffled sounds of the struggle, then infinite silence and a darkness where love cannot go. Afterward, they took me to Disney World, but I was no longer a child of God. Mm. Thank you. Very powerful. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Well, a little intense for a Monday morning. Uh-huh. <laughs> a little much, I think, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> no, but that's, uh, it's funny, this uh, reaching back to forms. Um, and I think, anecdotally speaking, the writing is paying enormous attention to forms right now. Um, Poetry in particular, there's a, a great deal of interest in sonnets and things like that. And um, it, how, wh- why do forms interest you? You wrote a poetry book, of more or less in sonnet form. Um, what do they do for your work? Because you have also this very uh, open and sort of channeling writing experience, and then you come, come down to form. It's very interesting. Well, I think that, you know, form is foundational. Also form is like permission. Like this is, um, these forms have been ordained as acceptable. (laughs) And like much of what I have to say is um, unacceptable. (laughs) So it's like by putting the unacceptable concept into the ordained or accepted form. Yes. Like, like, it's like, oh, okay, it's, I did it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just even the poem you just read is uh, accessing the role of the the act of confession. I mean, think how liberating confession was. It was the innovation, the great innovation of Christianity, mm-hmm. and um, and and then to 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 captivate that and harness it in that way is empowering. Um, so, yeah, Thanks. that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It also feeds, I think, our, our new medievalism <laughs> that our culture is heading into. Um, 
that uh, some of these things become more and more interesting, kind of what Umberto Eco foresaw in a way. What do you mean by new medievalism? Well, I think there's um, the, the, the enormous income inequality creates a, a huge distance between people. And some of these uh, monetary classes are becoming hereditary. So you have a kind of class system that's starting to embark upon that. You have a very fragmented uh, economy that has, and then, uh, you know, people seeking protection in large corporations, large institutions, because life outside of them is no longer viable. Um, those kinds of trends. And then knowledge at certain levels is held by fewer and fewer people and more and more people are kind of left not to know. I think our education system is really heading into a feudal model if we don't reform it. Uh, some people have access and some people don't and, and that access is getting harder. The, the great education is getting harder and harder to get. Um, and maybe we could use this as a transition to talk about your work in education, which is, yeah. we know, a big focus for you right now. Yeah. Um, I, I, yes, education. <laughs> education. Yeah, for all of us, of course, but yeah. yeah. And one of the questions we talked about is um, kind of the truths that we hold as society and what do you think people are missing what do you think people are uh, that are undervalued by society? That a lot of times, as group in groupthink or high mind, we're just blindsided by or we're not seeing. So, I mean, one of the things that I am very concerned about right now is the way in which, like, our protectionism, our sort of defensive, like, uh, I'm not going to get sick. Um, there's the the impact that this um, is having on young people, on um, adolescents and teens and, and younger. I don't think that we as like adults or as a society are really grappling with the kind of um, trauma that um, that our actions and narratives are inflicting generational trauma mm. on um on young people i think that um being not being able to i mean not being able to go outside not being able to commune with other people your age i don't think that we can even begin to comprehend what that does to the nervous system and what what that does to like development, and I think that um, it's it's a really serious issue that people are not talking about. Can you describe how this is manifesting in your work with students a little bit, perhaps? Yeah, so I'm a failed academic. <laughs> I was a college professor for uh, uh, six years, and I left my institution because of, of some endemic corruption that I was not willing to be a part of anymore. And also because I sensed that the system was coming down, 
And I didn't sense that this was that this was going to happen. <laughs> so right now we are in like a collapse of like all major institutions, but education, you know, being primary, being my primary field. Um, so for the last few years, I have um, I've been working with adolescents and teens um, more on a one on one sort of um, as a private tutor. Um, and in that work, what I've seen is that um, the model of education that we're using is like the model and means of education that we're that we're imposing on on children is largely what's the word in job indoctrination mm. and that has very little to do with actually developing like autonomous and critical autonomous critical thinking and at the same time i think that this uh generation uh gen z it the, the, they're digitally native in a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend and um, their experience of the world is fundamentally different from that of adults. And so as adults, we, we honestly cannot educate these kids because we do not know what world we're preparing them for. Mm. We do not know what we're preparing them for. So uh, I have, I'm working on building um, a like a school and a new model of education. It's called the New Paradigm School, which um, rather than being a sort of um, what Paulo Freire referred to as the banking model of education, where the teacher holds the knowledge and makes deposits in the students and the students are just sort of empty vessels. I mean, right now, what we're going through as a society is this huge sort of breakdown right and the what i see as the call is for every single one of us to step into our authentic person our authentic purpose and i think that that needs to start very young like really working with kids to help them recognize and own the gifts that they are given to give to the world and so I have this vision for a new sort of paradigm of education, which is like a shareable model of education where mentors come together with groups of, an expert mentor would come together with a group of kids to work on solving a real world problem. So it would be collaborative, experiential, student driven. And as the students work on a project, for example, the project that I'm working on with kids right now is a literary magazine. We're building a literary magazine. But as the kids engage in the learning process, they document what they learn, right? They document this through videos, through instructional manuals that they make themselves to teach each other. Mm. So from the beginning, the kid is a teacher him or herself. The kids, like, it's like a school where the kids are teaching each other because first of all, their pedagogy for each other is going to be more direct than anything that as an adult we can say to a, to a young person. And also in this sort of model, this collaborative model, it's like every, it, whatever 
whatever gifts you bring to the table are valid and are needed. So it's not like one person is in charge. It's like one person maybe has an editorial skill, whereas another person has like, um, like a technical skill and another person, you know, so it's mm, like, yeah, it's yeah. like identifying like where you work naturally and just like building that. Cause we don't have any time to, we don't have any time to waste. Like there's no time to play. There's no time to waste. There's no time to be shy. There's no time to not own your gifts. Like we're all being called mm. to step into our true power. It reminds me of a conversation once uh, corporations usually have about corporate uh, responses to in emergencies. And over time, the world was getting so complex that the companies couldn't develop these detailed exact strategic plans for this crisis, we do this step one, two, five or whatever. So they kind of collapsed back and just said, we're gonna focus on general resiliency and not try to have a plan for everything. And I think what you said about, we don't know what world we're educating for is, is a huge eye opener. Um, and, and finding a strategy to react to that, I think is, is really important as you say. So that sounds very interesting. Yeah, there are certain things I won't do right now. Like uh, families have come to me asking me to tutor for the SATs or to do or to do test prep. And I will not do that at this point in time. <laughs> like we like we don't know that, you know, the SAT is optional this year. We're not we're not wasting time with that game. That game is over. Is that universally optional now or just some colleges? Well, I mean, the big schools have gone up yeah. for the 2021 um, mm -hmm. application cycle. Um, and they're saying that they're going to go back to it. But once you take something apart, you're never going to put it back together the same way again. Yeah. Take something apart. It's not going to be the same. So and that's what I see. We're, we're in such a rush to sort of take everything apart. Everything's coming apart and we need to build new structures new sustainable structures. Mm. Um, so that's how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about some of the uh, works or authors that uh, influence you. I know you mentioned a couple in your pre-interview questions and tell us a little bit about what you hope people will what is it would be looking at or viewing in the future that is sustainable um that some works or um what is the question um yeah so any works or, or piece uh change your viewpoint of the world uh speak philosophies or one specific work to change your viewpoint of the world yeah well i have two sort of touchstone books that i always return to um one is the uh, Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, um, which I think uh, just the, the way, um, like a way of being, a way of life, a, a way that energy moves. Um, and I, that book for me has been so instrumental in terms of like really understanding um, the source of true power because what we generally refer to as power societally, when we use that word power, we're actually talking about control. 
uh, people who have a lot of control, who control resources. But um, maniacal control of resources is not power. It's not true power. It's actually deep insecurity. Mm. Like a desire to, to control and command um, is actually operating from a position of, of scarcity. It's a scarcity mentality. And true power, true power comes from um, an understanding that the resources of the universe are limitless. Our human potential is limitless. The potential of nature is limitless and that um, creation is miraculous. And so the Tao Te Ching has been absolutely instrumental for me. I return to it almost every day just for those meditations on, you know, what true mastery of the self looks like and what true power is. Um, that's, and the other book that I always return to is the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley, um, largely because of uh, just sort of the ruthless, the, his like ruthless and courageous truth telling mm. and his like the just the the in the, the indescribable power of those sentences one truth laid out after another and a man sort of ruthlessly seeking and speaking his own truth in the face of a society that tells him not to I just have so I, it never stops thrilling me, mm. that, that text. Do you see any uh, equivalent? I mean, I think Malcolm X is one of the irreplaceable, unique people in history, but do you see people who have echoes of him in public life right now, or people who you kind of prick up your ears when you see they're speaking or they've written something? Mm. Who am I? I, I myself find it hard to find the equivalence of these voices now. Yeah. Um, and it may be, uh, yeah. Well, the, I was telling BJ a few weeks ago that anytime anyone asks me to like name a, yeah. a book or an author, I go completely blank. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, if it, if something arises, I. Yeah. Um, so why don't we go into my sister's <laughs> father a little bit. And tell us a little bit more about that book, and and we'll read a sample from it. Uh, tell us a little more about the writing of the book and and where it's coming from. Sure, I do want to just uh, to respond to Bruce's question. I think that what we're seeing is um, like one of the things that's happening on the social realm is that we, we don't have sort of deified figures or gurus in the same way, yeah. like the, the grand master teacher. And Malcolm X, absolutely, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that he is a great American prophet. Like that, like mm -hmm. that man, that voice, he was truly channeling. He was a, like, he's a prophet. I, um, and like that aside. And another thing that's so beautiful about his work is the way that he um, owned his, um, his imperfections, his humanity, 
his flaws, what he had done wrong, right? So he was, and I think that that's the amazing thing about him as a prophet is that he's, uh, you know, this deeply complex man who's just, you know, telling you everything he ever did wrong in his life. <laughs> that's mm. um, but I, I think what's happening now is that we really see our heroes and our gurus are falling right like one after another like the like yeah. every major you know big the the figures that we've glorified that we've deified they're coming down and what we're seeing now is more of a grassroots um yes yeah a lot of like like the fake gay marriage did not have a malcolm x you know right. we we sat around waiting for years for someone to come and be that and then they never emerged and then when that succeeded the model of sort of distributive leadership for robustness and resiliency became more viable in our culture for the, some of the reasons you're talking about. But um, I, I, I think that's wonderful that, that these movements like Black Lives Matter is very much working that way. There's a change movement going on in theater to make it more accessible to black uh, artists, which is all leaderless. And, um, intentionally so so it's but i still find a hunger for the thinkers and the speakers you know it's still something that i i would love to see mm. um it excites me when i see people who can speak and lead in the patterns of some of our past heroes so but vj we want to go yeah, on to go the into reading if we reading thank you for that. elaborating on thank that thank you thank you yeah um so why don't we start off with a poem from my sister's father and then we can go a little more into it. Um, oh, well, I'm going to read, this is kind of a long poem. I'm going to read it though, because it's the poem that I opened <laughs> the page to. Yeah. <laughs> also sort of... Uh, so the, My Sister's Father is a book that I wrote. Um, my father was a criminal and his crimes were actually in education. And so my relationship with education and the responsibility of educating people is very, it's something that I take very seriously. Um, so this poem is about sort of the, that I wrote during sort of the time when his, uh, his sort of educational empire was crumbling and uh, in a state of dissolution. It's called His Time Had Finally Come. His time had finally come into the living room and settled like an elephant in the corner, evidence there hidden in plain vision. We read the paper trail for a beginning, but that ancient scroll unrolled in all dimensions, so we ran from the summons. We ran from our name. We married, but it stuck. We shouldn't have converted. For wherever we ran, our hearts were penned like sows in the sentence. Our father stands on trial for his errors and the internet never forgets it. We stood at the edge of a precipice. My father held firm his hollow ground. My sister stood diminutive for sorrow. She sighed and looked up at me through my eyes. 
I stood stock still, frozen like an animal that would go invisible if I refused to move. In this way, we all adopted common postures of denial. I became a lie detector. My sister was my father's answering machine. He processed all my sister's words before she said them. She was the personal computer of his interests and he controlled it all remotely while she obsequious disposed the heavy garbage but never could escape the fires he had started in the basement. I tried to be the type of writer that could write our type of failure, but all my trying failed because our story was alive with buried secrets worming towards the daylight and I was just reading the papers. So take my, hair, my hands and pull my strings, pull my pretty hair and handfuls, pull to see how much will come withdrawing funds then calculate expended grief and total sin. You are a shopkeep sweeping up the order of the cosmos, closing in. Then frown and listen harder to the rain. The rose hedge by the window ledge was hung with dew and through this lens, which magnifies our pain, you scan the stories of the house that housed our clan where public scandal reigned in righteous anger. Winds unhinged the secrets in the cabinet Felled the family tree as the, roof, as the roof collapsed beneath his reputation. Rumor spread like water over floorboards. My sister blotted at the mess with bulletins. A father raining diamonds on his daughters. A father picking pockets. Our father is a fraud. We thought perhaps the storm would pass and history would arc over us in all the colors of a covenant. But the moral of our story was our story had no moral. So the rain soaked through our marble mansion made of cardboard. We poured our soiled wishes in the fishbowl and cl climbed another cobbled ladder propped to nowhere. Where the future was a stranger ready in the pantry with a yardstick waiting to assess the difference between what happened and what was said to have happened last fiscal year. The year of the rat now passed. Thank lovely, lovely, lovely. That's so. Uh, we're back in a rat year, right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. We are in a rat year. <laughs> oh gosh, if this is a rat year, I don't, I don't know what it'll be around in twelve years. <laughs> the rat is actually um, like the rat can survive the plague. So it's actually very fortuitous. Yeah. Interesting. Rat is the survivor. And so it's actually very fortuitous that we're in the rat year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, do you, that's an interesting thing you say that because we see so much hope for change right now. And then I think there is some really well-grounded optimism that some of the um, explosions out of this and some of the reorganizations coming out of this time are going to be positive. Um, do you feel optimistic about how we're going to be in two to three years, the, the after compared to the before? I, I feel that there we're going we're going through tremendous growing pains and all that is not serving is passing away. And it's very scary. 
Mm. It's very scary um, because, you know, we're, we're invested in literally and figuratively in these systems and in these organizations. And as you know, it is, it's frightening because we're holding, we're holding on, right? But the real, I think the real task is a task of surrender. Mm. Um, I mean, I have personally been through like two uh, sort of situations where my whole world collapsed and I thought I was living through an apocalypse and my sense of self dissolved. And, um, and then actual, but what happens is that we truly find ourselves. And I think that this breaking down is an opportunity for us to really get clear about what we truly value, you know, and who we truly are. And I wouldn't say that I'm hopeful or optimistic, but I would say that I'm a person of true faith. Yeah, it seems like the processing of all that we're going through um, in one of the ways uh, we're creating this kind of, uh, you know, hellish experience. And we, we talked a little bit about how, you know, your optimism to be, we can make a heaven on earth, but uh, tell us a little bit about that, that dichotomy between like, you know, process is, is that burning, you know, fire that uh, creative process is something where you're forging something out of it. But then what does it mean to be and what do you think it means to have like happiness or, you know, or, or, you know, to be in a, a place where is that even the goal? You know, I mean, is it, you know, what do you think is the goal? And what do you think is the, you know, I was just reflecting on that. It's like, we think of in terms of like, you know, fire and brimstone versus like, you know, eternally, eternally being happy. But, you know, the struggle we go through is something that is something to be valued, you know? So, you know, this three-dimensional realm is a realm of polarity. So we, we experience every, we experience everything in polarity. Um, you know, good, bad, black, white, um, hate, love. Um, so, and I think that what we're being called to do is to integrate. I think we're being called into integration. So, I mean, one of the things that is really, you know, so much of my experience has been one of like a hellish experience, like a sort of hell on earth experience. And it occurred to me, um, I spent the month of June um, in the Berkshires, uh, like on a little brook, like tending a garden. And um, I realized that, you know, hell, our, our Judeo-Christian conception of hell, I think is absolutely a place on earth. I think that we, we as human am, animals and human consciousness have been able to conceive of what we call, you know, um, spiritual hell because we live it, mm. right? We ex we've all experienced that conflict, that inner turmoil, 
those depths of despair. We've experienced depravity, we've experienced injustice and like the struggle and that, and we've, ex we've experienced that hell. And it occurred to me while I was, you know, in nature that um, heaven is also a place on earth. And, and heaven, I think the heavenly realm, the angelic realm is we access it through communion with nature and through deep communion and connection with each other. And so um, I do think that it, I do feel strongly that this is something that we can ground down you know, we've done a very good job of creating hell on earth. Yeah. And I think that with a little imagination, and if we start telling different stories, you know, we're so globally, narrative makes reality. The stories we tell, like we tell stories and they become true. We've seen this play out with science fiction. We see this play out with, you know, like reality television. We say Kim Kardashian's a star, she becomes a star. We, Donald Trump says he's going to be the president, he becomes the president. It like we, reality is made through the stories that we tell and where we put our attention. And I think that if we can reclaim our attention and stop giving it, stop giving our attention to, um, to hate, to conflict, to fear, and reinvest our attention, our soma, our human consciousness, the most valuable force in the universe, reinvest that attention in, in peace, in each other, and in um, sustaining and caring for the natural world. I think there's, I'm telling different stories. I think we need to collectively, we're collectively telling a doomsday story. I think that if we one by one begin telling a different story and collectively focusing our energy, we can, I think that we're headed for something very beautiful. Thank you. Mm. So this is Truth to Power Show and Ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, listener-supported radio. Um, if you'd like to listen to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, if you're listening over your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone and the Google Play Store for Android. Uh, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about our new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Um, of course, uh, you know, COVID-19 has been disrupting everyone's lives and continues to do so. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is no exception. As we begin to uh, reintegrate into the studio, uh, please know that we're, um, we're asking that, um, you know, uh, with the muscle revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. We realize that you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation and go a long way towards helping us stay on the air, there are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by going to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Then you'll find some good t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you as a thank you. You can also go to, you can also text in your phone to RFB Give 5 uh, to 44321. 
It only takes a moment and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to amazon.com smile and register already for Brooklyn as a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do your percentage of sales, can go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. Um, thank you so much to our listeners. Um, so any final plugs or any final uh, things you want to direct people to? To check out why don't we, we say your website again uh, yeah so my blog is www.petmurmur.com you can also find me at uh, christinegardner.com and on insta at christine gardner writing so christina going back to your beautiful statement just before um trying to create this world you're, you're talking about, of telling new stories, uh, what would be a step that uh, a person could do stepping in the direction you're describing uh, that one could do today or this week or something like that that, would, um, that you might advise? I would um, advise you to talk to the birds. <laughs> 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 just like pay a little attention to the birds yeah job and yeah. roses <laughs> yeah. well i think even in urban areas i've spent the last many months i figured out i had done 450 consecutive home-cooked meals um here in queens and um even in urban environments, you just see the city in such a different way when you're in one place within it all day um, and not uh, commuting or being distracted by a lot of tasks outside of just that idea of communing, being where you are, not even, even if it's in front of a deli or if it's in front of a bus stop or um, in a park with birds, as you say, just being where you are this has given a lot of us a chance to, to really be, to be there more. And um, hopefully this will be the upside of what we're experiencing. Yeah. It's like mama earth has all given us a timeout. <laughs> yeah. Or daddy economy. <laughs> mama earth. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give the economy the villainous role here. <laughs> So also, I want to tell the audience that they should go to nightcloudjournal.org uh, to find out about the release of uh, the first issue, inaugural issue of Nine Cloud Journal, which I've been um, working on uh, these past few months. Um, so you go to ninecloudjournal.org and you could uh, pre-order the um, ebook, which is going to be released on August 8th. So I hope people will go check that out. Um, and also, the Truth to Power show airs every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, through Radio for Brooklyn's apps and uh, website. And we broadcast right now at Thursday at 9 a.m. Although, check your listings at radioforbrooklyn.org to confirm that in the event of any schedule changes. But definitely Monday morning at 8 a.m. We air every, every week. Thank you. And Vijay, we should also congratulate you on your inclusion in the book Poets of Queens, which oh, is you. coming yeah. out soon. Congratulations. Yeah, I think it's already available for purchase on Amazon. So you can look up Poets of Queens Anthology. The editor is Olina Jennings. 
and uh, many samplings of many Queens writers were uh, included in that. Um, you know, a sampling of the work produced in Queens. So definitely Queens, New York City. So definitely uh, check that out as well. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll be having a Zoom meeting for uh, Nine Cloud Journal. So if anybody wants to join, please follow us at Nine Cloud Journal at Facebook. Right now we have a fan page on Facebook which has the event. So you can always RSVP and get the Zoom code for the Saturday's event. My 42nd birthday will be that oh. day. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, 88, 88. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Thank wow. you so much, VJ, for inviting you. me. And thank you, Bruce. And thank you, Radio Free Brooklyn. Yay. Yeah. So, Christine Gardner, it's been wonderful talking to you and very inspiring to hear some of the aspects of your journey and how you have uh, forged such wonderful writing from your experiences. And, yeah. and working with students at a time like this is really uh, God's work. So, I hope that you uh, have continued success in changing lives and helping helping students discover who they really are. That's a wonderful adventure. Thank you. Yeah. We have about a minute left. Uh, let's see. So if you have any final thoughts or we'll uh, maybe go out with a, with a musical number. Um. <laughs> so I'll play. I'll play a little bit from. Uh, uh, yeah. So much for first thought, eh, Christine? Yeah. <laughs> My final thought is that like true freedom is telling the truth. Yeah. And like that freedom is actually. It's it's terrifying when we first step into freedom, and like it's also necessary we have no choice yeah there was and a great meme where they they have the existentialist trying to give out uh a card to uh that says make your own meaning and the <laughs> nihilist is like no no he's trying to dodge that so it's like you know uh the idea of like that the idea that we're we're here to make our own meaning and only people who are or people who are you know, bleeding nothing. Are <laughs> like, I don't want to make my own meaning. You know, <laughs> so it's <laughs> mm. interesting. Thank you. Oh. All right, so I'll play a little bit from Tori Amos. I think going out, and then <laughs> let the audience listen a little bit to Quite a Light Sneeze. Thank you. Thank you. All right.